So uh, let me welcome you tonight for a very special occasion. Uh, I think a historic occasion. In fact, I'm reminded uh, of the story uh, of JFK who once hosted a dinner at the White House for Nobel laureates in which he introduced it by saying, this is the greatest concentration of knowledge ever assembled at the White House except when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. That so, was Henry Kissinger, actually, Graham, in the Hall of Mirrors. <laughs> so tonight we have many members of our International Council of the Belfer Center. And if I went around and introduced them from Bob Belfer or Huss Cartwright, the former vice chairman, or Felipe Calderon, the former president of Mexico, we would be a huge assembly of people. I'd say this is the greatest concentration of strategic courage since... Mayor Degan and David Petraeus dined alone. So we're fortunate to be present at the feast. We have two people tonight who are genuine legends. They're heroes, decorated heroes, warriors. I'm sorry, I needed to write you a three copy. Oh. One for my wife, two for my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> so legends, warriors, decorated heroes, and serious strategic thinkers. You've got uh, their resumes or a little draft of the resume in the program that was handed out. Uh, about Mir um, Degan, I would simply say he's the legendary uh, head of Mossad who uh, transformed Mossad over his 11 years period as the head of it to uh, the envy of every intelligence community in the world. Uh, he's also uh, not uh, reluctant to draw inconvenient conclusions, even controversial conclusions. For example, in 2011, when Israeli politics under Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, was pushing towards an airstrike on Iran, Mayer said famously, this is the stupidest idea I have ever heard. Uh, this led to then some further controversy. David Petraeus is one of my heroes and friends. He's America's greatest modern general. He's a graduate of West Point, PhD from the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. He rose through every level of uh, the military to be the commander of U.S. forces in Iraq and uh, uh, the leader of the surge which turned the, turned the tide in Iraq, the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, commander of CENTCOM, director of CIA. We also are very honored that here at the Belfer Center at Harvard, David has become a senior fellow non-resident where he's leading a major project. So we're very pleased to have both of them here. Let's say welcome to both. So the, the plan tonight is uh, for uh, me to ask a few questions to start a conversation between our uh, two guests. Uh, after a few minutes, or about 40 minutes or so, there'll be opportunities for members of the audience to ask questions. But let me start off uh, uh, with a reality check on the Middle East, and let me start with uh, Mayer. So as he was flying home this weekend from his 12th trip to the Middle East, uh, Secretary of State Kerry 
uh, said, maybe it's time for, this is his words, a reality check. So if you look at the, the past year uh, and the interactions between Secretary Kerry on behalf of President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu and Abu Mazen, uh, which is most in need of a reality check from your point of view? Maybe start with Mayer and then see what, what David thinks. That's a difficult question. Um, to answer it seriously, I think that there is a basic problem between the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians. We, in a, in a way, have to give real assets land. From the Palestinian point of view, they are giving us promises. Second fact is, um, since the dialogue that started with uh, Yasser Arafat and they arrived into the territories in 1994, uh, there was no real change in their position. And if you are going to have a negotiation, you have to find a new, a give and go, a given, a given, give, take. give and take. And unfortunately, they have uh, took a decision, what I call it the legacy of uh, Arafat, the late Arafat, and he declared the solution. And they accept the solution as the final goal, not as a goal, but they are unwilling to make any compromise. And unfortunately, on the ground, there is new facts on the ground that you have to take in consideration. Unfortunately, I didn't see any change and any realization of the situation by the Palestinians. From the other side, the Israelis, the Israeli society is divided among two schools. One of them is that, okay, let's accept a solution of two-state solution and accept the border of 67 and other issues. Uh, and some of them are very opposing it. Then the Israeli society did not yet took a real decision in which direction they are going to go. Then there is need of a real to realize the situation. As uh, Secretary Kerry is saying, I believe it needed to be done on both sides. And I'm now not trying to line myself with one of the groups. I think there is a necessity to realize the situation. And there are serious difficulties. Not all the problem could be solved by the parties. Let me give you two examples. Let's say that Israel is not unwilling to accept the return of Palestinians into Israel. Because for us, it's, a, it's really the collapse of the Jewish state. And you need to solve the problem. This really could not be solved by the Palestinians or by the Israelis. You have to accept the point of view that everywhere that you have Palestinians, they will need to accept or receive citizenship of the country they are living in. I know a little bit our region, the possibility that uh, some of those countries are going to present citizenship to the Palestinian diaspora. Let's, let me put it this way. It's much easier to arrange a, a, a peace between Israel and the Palestinians that they will be received citizenship. I believe the issue of money could be solved. Don't, I don't see it as a problem. Let's take the holy places. 
the only places could not be solved really by the Palestinians. It's not a Palestinian issue, it's an Islamic problem. Then to be, to try to solve it, you at least need at least three countries. You need Saudi Arabia, that is considered themselves as the protector of the two holy places, and see themselves as a, the major country who are keeping the Islamic flag on the ideology. You need the Jordanian, because as part of the peace agreement, Israel gave a special role to the Jordanians on the holy places in Jerusalem. And uh, you need Morocco, because they are heading the committee of Jerusalem in the Arab League. Then it's not important how you are looking. The necessity to solve it needs a goodwill, a trust between the leadership, and some level of giving up and taking another side. And unfortunately, uh, I don't see, if I may tell you a story about, a short story, there's a famous story about uh, President Obama and Putin and Prime Minister Netanyahu were allowed to go and to meet God. And each one of them was entitled to ask one question. President Obama said, okay, I'm a superpower, I will be the first one. He asked, uh, when the American dream is going to dominate the world? Then God replied, about the 65 years from now, Obama started to cry. He said, why are you crying? Your dream is going to fulfill. He said, yes, but it's not going to be my time. Putin came back and said, when Russia is going to regain its influence, it had uh, when they were the Soviet Union. He said, about eight years from now, Putin started to cry. He said, why you are you crying? He said, it's nice to hear that this is the future, but it's not going to be in my time. Bibi asked, when we will have peace with the Palestinians? God started to cry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, David, what do you say to that? <laughs> Let me say what they say in Congress. You know, I associate myself with the gentleman's remarks. Um, look, the writ large, the reality is that the Middle East is a mess. I mean, extraordinarily difficult situation to state the obvious. Uh, the results of the Arab Spring in all cases, except for that of Tunisia, have been uh, much greater instability in the countries uh, that now are trying to move forward. Uh, Egypt, Libya, uh, Syria. Syria is now a regional civil war, uh, Sunni Shia, uh, with global overtones, in fact. Uh, and then you have the shadow of the Iranian nuclear program uh, over all of that in Iran's uh, destabilizing activities in a number of the different countries. Uh, and ironically, interestingly, it is the monarchies that have uh, retained their stability. The reformist monarchies, I think yeah. it would be fair to, to uh, title them because there have actually been in their circumstances, uh, relatively speaking, uh, a reasonable number of reforms in addition to certainly the, uh, the use of money and so forth uh, for a variety of social programs. Uh, and then of course you have uh, in this, the midst of this, uh, the continuing issue uh, of the uh, Israeli and, and Palestinian uh, issue. Uh, I think John Kerry knows the reality of this area very, very well. Uh, I think he has sought certainly to inject energy and new sense of uh, purpose and so forth uh, to that effort. And he clearly, uh, by his own uh, acknowledgement to the press, 
recognizes that this is a point at which uh, he has to confront the reality that Meyer has just described, where it appears that the two parties uh, really uh, have red lines that are so far apart uh, that it's going to be very, very hard to bridge them. In fact, it might be worth asking Meyer what he thinks of the idea, you know, there's this idea of a plan B. And I was in Tel Aviv back in late January and had this laid out for me by one of the architects of it, that perhaps the result is that there is a reasonably moderate proposal uh, that is actually implemented by uh, Israel uh, that actually avoids the challenges that otherwise might, might be out there from the international community if this all breaks down and, and stops. And so maybe, Meyer, just to ask you quickly, I'm sure you're familiar with that. I'm sure it's been laid out for you at various times. Uh, is there a prospect of that? Is, there, is that something that has some logic to it? First of all, I'm not representing my government. It's my own opinion. I think it would be a mistake in doing so. The reasons are very simple. First of all, the responsibility, the security responsibility will always be on Israel. It's not important if we will be present in the territories or not. In some areas, we will have to maintain some level of uh, presentation. For instance, on the border between Israel and, and Jordan, we will need to control every aspect of terrorism. Couldn't that be part of a plan B? Again, this will be designed by Israel, so why not? Yes, but you have to bring in, for instance, the Jordanians. You have to bring yep. other Arabic countries. And in a way, even if you are going to do it, it's not going to change the situation. It will be some facts on the ground. And unfortunately, um, we might see an area that could develop by itself into be dominated by radical Islamic organization. And the result, we are, will be threatening the most important center for Israel, the area of Tel Aviv or the town, because the distance of the border is in some cases less than seven miles. Some cases, what I call the longest one, is around 15 miles. It will be a problematic issue, and the most important one I already mentioned. It's not important where we will be located, the responsibility whatever is happening on the ground would be ours in any case. I think it's better to reach some arrangement, some agreement, and I'm for an agreement. And uh, to take steps by ourselves, we have a very vivid experience with Gaza. We retreated from Gaza. Yeah, this is not, not the plan B that I saw. We did not envision anything like that. When, when the retreat from Gaza was perceived and predicted. Nobody was predicting that it would be taken over by the Hamas. Nobody was able to predict that by the taking over by the Hamas organization of Gaza, it's going to create almost a daily problem of uh, Israeli cities and other settlements, not in the territories, uh, shelled on a daily basis. And I don't have to tell you, sir, we are not uh, prophets. Our ability to analyze the situation for the future is limited, and we are able to consider many elements and many aspects. I think the most crucial aspect of it is even if we retreat, 
it will appear by the world like we are trying to impose a solution. It's not going to be accepted by nobody. And from the other hand, we are not going to be rid of the responsibility of the territory. Then I think that to reach the, uh, an independent solution without consulting the Palestinians from the strategic point of view and from the political point of view, I think it will be very problematic. So let me, let me stay though with the reality check just to one yeah, more. Sure. Um, and particularly in the, in the US-Israeli dimension of this. Because uh, the question is, do, are they, you'd imagine that Secretary Kerry, let's say on the one hand, and the Israeli government on the other, are operating on the basis of more or less the same reality, or they may be in different reality zones. And just to spice it up a little bit, let me, you're, uh, here, the Israeli Defense Minister, Moshe Dalon, as you know, and so he's talking that he thought that he might be off the record. Here's what he said, that Senator Kerry, or Secretary Kerry, is, quote, operating from an incomprehensible obsession and a sense of messianism. The only thing that might save us is if John Kerry wins the Nobel Peace Prize and leaves us behind. So that's what Kerry, what Alon says. Now here's Kerry. I think he subsequently clarified that remark yes, that he's not correct. He said, I didn't mean to be speaking in public. Uh. <laughs> here's here's Ker Kerry this weekend on the f coming back. And he says, he, this is a quote. He said, he said, I just, he said, I'm sorry I'm a little late because I just got off a long phone call, quote. It was one of those calls where you can't get the other person to realize that the call is over, close quote. This was a call with Bibi. Okay. So uh, what about the reality check? We are expecting to Please. take a position on what. No, just uh, in terms of your reality. Are these all in the same zone, more or less, or they're in different, different realities, or you have a, maybe they're each in a different wrong area. It's all hard all the time, Graham. Um, I don't think that the National Football League yeah. is what it really is. But I really appreciate the efforts of uh, yeah. Secretary Kerry, and um, I don't think that he took a mission just to do something. I think there is a real American interest in it. The real American interest is the role of the United States in the Middle East is suffering now from what I call a dark cracks in the, in the eyes of the countries in the Middle East when we are referring to the United States. It's related to the position of the United States in Egypt, to the position of the United States in, in Syria, it's related to drawing out your forces from Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's related to the agreement or the dialogue of the agreement between the uh, United States and Iran. Then there is what I call question marks about what is the real policy of the United States. I'm not referring now to Israel. I'm referring to the countries in the region. If we are speaking on the reality, let's look what is the real situation with the Palestinians. The last time that President Abu Mazen was elected is, was in 2004. Since then, there was no election. The real reason why there was no election 
because they are afraid that if it will be election, he's going to lose, and the people who are going to replace him are going to be members of the Hamas. And I don't think that in the case of Israel, Israel is able to make an agreement with the Hamas because they are unwilling to recognize the existence of a Jewish state, not as a phrase of Bibi Netanyahu, but they are unwilling to recognize Israel. It's not important in one kind, what kind of form. The second reason is, the second problem is, let's look a little bit into the Palestinian society. You have an, an in, in the Fatah organization, the organization of Abu Mazen, you have a great opposition. One of its members of the opposition is Dakhlan, who is now supported with, from the Jishi states, and, and he is leading a campaign against Abu Mazen. And the quarrel between them is worse than the conflict between us and the Palestinians. Third, you have to take in consideration that at least 25% or 20% are in the West Bank are supporters of the Hamas. Then, let's say that you are signing an agreement. Are we signing an agreement to Gaza? Or we have to sign two agreements? Then the, the reality is creating great difficulties. I think the right approach is uh, not only the right negotiation directly between Israel and the Palestinians, but you have to bring in, in one way or another, the Arab League. Not as a supporter of the Palestinian state, but having an indirect dialogue with them, because for some of the issue, it's a necessity to get, for Abu Mazen, to get support from the Arab League. Without it, he's unwilling to give some confession. And without giving those concessions, the possibility of reaching an agreement is not existing. I think that the reality is much more complicated that people are trying to simplify it and present it. Look, there are people who want peace and people who don't want peace. Everyone wants peace. And uh, I'm a soldier, believe me, I'm carrying a stick because I pay the prices of wars. And from my point of view, I would be happy to sign a peace treaty. But there are realities are creating serious problems. And it's not something like uh, sitting around the table and solving the problem. This is, it's much more complicated. It's the, let's look a little bit from the Palestinian point of view. You have a Palestinian diaspora that in this point in time, they are real threatened in Syria. If you are measuring the Palestinian diaspora, for instance, in Lebanon, they also threaten in Lebanon. Then, from his point of view of Abu Mazen, the seriousness that he looks upon the Palestinian diaspora, I believe is very well perceived by Israel. And uh, the Arab Spring, even though it's not shaping up now in the territory, because they have a much more clearer goal to solve the Palestinian problem, it's really creating uncertainties in the Middle East. You really don't know what is going to be the future. Nobody is able to guess what will happen in Syria. Nobody is able to guess what will be the end game in Egypt or uh, what will happen in Libya. I agree with the general that Tunisia is, uh, for the time being, an exception. Yeah. For the time being. Yeah. Let's That's remember what? that this was the only place where the Arab Spring was almost finished without blood. Mm -hmm. 
then this is a unique place, a new, unique situation, and every country is a different, what I call a different situation. So you maybe, David, what do you, how do you see this? Well, I mean, what you're seeing actually is why reality is so hard. I mean, what Meyer has laid out is uh, the, all the different aspects of this, and this is still at the surface level uh, in a forum of why this is so very, very difficult. Um, look, I respect Secretary Kerry for what he's tried to do. Uh, he's a guy who bailed us out. You may recall he was the one when we had the election in Afghanistan back in 2009, I think it was. I remember I was sitting in Islamabad waiting to hear whether or not he could, and he walked laps around the presidential palace with President Karzai uh, and, and finally resolved that particular situation where President Karzai had thought that there was some machinations to try to get a second round in the presidential election. It was masterful, frankly, and, and it really saved the day. Uh, I saw him do the same thing on a couple of occasions in Pakistan when he was the commander in Central Command, a number of other, and this is when he was just the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So I think to, to take this on to try to, again, to inject some new sense of, uh, try to achieve a sense of momentum and so forth uh, is admirable, but it's running now into the reality that he is himself has talked about, and I think just what, what Meyer has laid out uh, illustrates so vividly how very, very hard this is. There's one other factor here for what it's worth, and that is that it used to be said quite often, I think President Obama said it, Secretary Clinton said it, I actually uh, said it a couple of times when I was the Central Command Commander, that the, the status quo is not sustainable, and it typically involved security challenges to uh, Israel. Um, but I'm not so sure that that is the case anymore. Uh, I'm not so sure the status quo from Israel's perspective uh, is not sustainable. Uh, you have now the best security that Israel has had in a number of years, if not longer. Uh, there is a, a, a government in uh, Egypt that is going after uh, the tunnels to Gaza, uh, has been a willing partner uh, against al-Qaeda. They certainly have issues in the Sinai they've got to deal with, but they seem to be going after those. And the indirect fire threat to Israel, which was seen as so significant, you know, tens of thousands, perhaps more hundreds of thousands of projectiles uh, stockpiled with Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, now you have Iron Dome and a variety of associated systems that actually can knock down a fair amount of what heads toward uh, populated areas. And the walls have worked, the security checks and so forth have kept uh, Israel from experiencing the kind of suicide bombings and other bombings that were feature of daily reality uh, a decade or so ago, and a tribute, in fact, to uh, some of your old colleagues and, and, and to his leadership. But, so I'm not sure that that anymore well, is has got the same kind of drive that we've got to resolve this or else. And uh, so that's, a, it's another dynamic in this that probably makes it even more difficult. Let me push one more layer with sure. the same. So if, if you pull up the, the uh, quote for the, for the, uh, uh, so, one of uh, Mir's uh, old colleagues and friend was a Kennedy School graduate we're proud of, Ami Alon, who was the Shin Bet uh, chief, said in this Gatekeepers movie, the documentary, the tragedy of the public security debate is that we don't realize that we're winning every battle, but we're losing the war. Yeah, so I'm not, what do you I, think? That, I don't know. You're saying that may I, not be uh, right. Yeah? Maybe just keep winning every battle. And again, that's keep 
extending the horizon. I mean, that's not, this is not a bad situation right now, if you look at it from Israel. By the way, also, Israel now is about to have its own energy revolution. It's going to be exporting natural gas, uh, and it's startup nation. Uh, in my okay. role in the financial world, we're keenly interested in all Absolutely. these uh, initiatives over there. So it's, uh, so in a number of ways, uh, Israel has reversed situations or solved challenges that seem to be very, very significant, and we're pushing toward the resolution. Again, I'm not saying that, yeah. that I wouldn't like to see an no, agreement. You're raising like the Meyer, question, though, is but it makes yeah. it even more difficult. Yeah. So this is a, a real, real conundrum. What do you say, Mia? Are I we think it's winning the battles and not the war, or it's good enough. No, I, I like Ami very much, but uh, it's not necessary. I have to agree about no, of everything not. that he's saying. Let me say, but strategically, a peace is a real need for Israel, not because of security issue. If they want to be to continue to be in Israel, that is the home of the Jewish state. If we are not going to solve the problem in the future, or in the near future, we might be ended in a situation where we are going to be have a two-state solution. And uh, in our case, it will be a disaster from our point of view. And I think that this is a real necessity, not because of the Palestinian interest, but because our own interest. The problem is that the situation is very complicated. And um, you need a very determined leadership that when it's look in the Middle East and see the turmoil that is taking place, you try to prepare yourself for the future, then you are unwilling to take any risks. And uh, we have a long experience in an unstable situation. I believe the only constant that exists in the Middle East is the instability. And I agree with the general that said that kingdoms were the only one who really survived yeah. the Arab Spring. The remain reason is very simple. I'm not going to elaborate too much. I will say, first of all, it's usually a tribal society. Second, kings were becoming kings as a coalition between tribes sure. and supported by strong families. Mm -hmm. And it's rooted so deeply in the Muslim society that it was working even challenges like the Arab Spring. And um, I believe they are remaining still as a very important pillar for stability in the region. And from the Israeli point of view, to maintain that system is uh, in our interest. But the uncertainties of the future uh, creating a very, what I call, difficult time for leadership to take decisions. Let me, let me turn you to, there's so many topics to raise, Syria, Iran, uh, Arab uh, revolutions, but let me go to Iran. As I think I said earlier today, one of my other friends uh, once introduced uh, Meir as the person who did the most to assist the delay of the Iranian nuclear bomb. Let me put it this so way, we were never alone. and. Uh, the general and previous leader of the CIA. He's not confessing we're, we're to anything. No, no, never, no. Never confirmed or denied. No, we're playing a major role. I'm not saying about our role, but they played a very major role. So the question is, where do we stand now, as you see it, on Iran's path to a bomb? And in particular, 
since there clearly there are now the most serious negotiations that we've seen, uh, what, how do you make the odds on an agreement that stops Iran verifiably short of a bomb? Maybe, David, yeah. why I, don't you? I, you know, I'm actually starting to think that an agreement really is possible. And it could be that it's possible before the, uh, this particular six-month deadline <coughs> expires. You can just, you know, if you're an avid reader of uh, the Iranian press and so forth, and I've got a lot of folks that still help me keep up with that, you can detect sometimes a sense that this may actually take place and that the security state, and again, keep in mind, Iran has two states, really. There's a supreme leader and there's the security state, Quds Force, Revolutionary Guards Corps, besieged militia, and then the traditional state with the president, parliament, ministries. And of course, uh, the traditional state can't always deliver the security state. It's a very important factor and has actually gained probably more importance over the course of, of recent years. Uh, but you have a sense that perhaps there's a recognition among all uh, that an agreement that gets them out from underneath these uh, enormous sanctions, uh, which have brought them to the table, make no mistake about it, uh, that this could actually culminate in an agreement. And of course, it's an agreement that has to satisfy not just the permanent five members of the UN plus Germany, the P5 plus one. Uh, frankly, it also has to satisfy, I think, uh, our domestic political uh, elements at home, the U.S. Congress, uh, colleagues, uh, comrades, partners, allies in Tel Aviv, and on the Iranian side, they're going to have to satisfy the security state again, as well as, uh, again, the negotiators that are from the traditional state. Um, it's worth mentioning, and, and I discussed this when we were together earlier today, that we actually ought to think about what success looks like, because while we all want success, clearly it's far preferable to whatever m might re result in a kinetic strike on the Iranian program and who knows where the retaliation leads and what happens in the wake of that. Um, but success is going to empower Iran and it will cause concerns among states that are already concerned about Iran's, in their words, quest for regional hegemony, its activities. Uh, in Syria, obviously, supporting Lebanese Hezbollah, the Quds forces active there, Bashar al-Assad's regime, active in, uh, in Iraq, uh, active in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia with the Houthis down in Yemen, uh, in Bahrain, and so forth and so on. And these are legitimate concerns. And now Iran, with the sanctions coming off, will all of a sudden have a bounty. This is a country that has been going down in production of its energy resources and then constrained in its export of crude oil. But let's remember this has the number two natural gas reserves in the world and the number four uh, oil reserves. And so it is going to, in a big way, benefit from this. It'll take some time to get production back up and so forth, but that will happen. And then it will be reintegrated into the global economy in a way that it has not been in, in anyone's memory. And uh, so again, there will have to be some, uh, an explicit program to reassure our Gulf uh, Council partners, uh, Israel, uh, and to actually have concrete programs, uh, again, that represent that reassurance and, and act in, in terms of, say, release of uh, military hardware that some of the Gulf states have wanted and, and have not been able to get, the same for Israel. A uh, variety of exercises, uh, the, the sustainment of the substantial security so, uh, res resources that we have committed out there, because it will still very much be 
in our vital national interest to ensure that free transit of 40% of the world's energy resources, which after all fuels our trading partners. So even as we are becoming more uh, independent in our own energy with our own energy revolution and North America could become self-sustainable in, in energy uh, with the Mexican uh, energy revolution taking off in a few years, we will still care about the free transit for that uh, oil and gas that comes out of the Gulf. Well, Mayor, you make the odds uh, pretty good or, or good or bad or what? I believe anything that will come out of this agreement will be problematic. Why is it going to be problematic? Because a very simple reason. You have to define now what you are going to do if they are going to feel to neglect to fulfill the agreement. And that should be part of it, as we mentioned yes. earlier today. That yes. should be part of the package that you're but prepared. What I saw success. in the, I, yeah. I agree, but yep. I, what I saw in the media, nobody is discussing what are going to be the penalties if, for instance, the Iranians are cheating. And I think that our problem is not signing a piece of paper. Our real problem is how you are stopping the Iranian military project, nuclear military project, first. And second, how you are reassuring that they are signing and they are really fulfilling it from every aspect of it. And I think it's a, a very complicated issue. Somebody who had for a very long time an interest in Iran, I don't think, as I know the Iranian, that they are going to sit down quietly and accept because they signed an agreement to keep it. Yeah, I can give you a few examples. Yeah, we should accept yes. it. We should, you know, don't trust, verify. And yes. that'll be a big component of it. And if it's not there, yes, but how we, the how U.S. Senate, for starters, won't accept it, and then Tel Aviv won't accept it. So I think that's, you know, that's part and parcel of the agreement. But, but how to do it, yeah. Intrusive verification. I see. I agree, but this is not only an inspection, because till now, theoretically, there was an inspection in Iran. And, atomic and, energy. and we have kept up with what's going on, actually. We've had yes, a very good feel for what's going on yes, inside Bordeaux and, and inside Matanz. And I the agree, but it was not because of the inspection. Oh, no, that's a big factor. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I, with, with respect, I mean, we're, I've actually been in the business more recently, yes. and um, certainly other endeavors, other activities supplemented enormously, but having on the ground inspectors counting and all the rest of this has been invaluable. Now that's been informed by obviously a lot of help from other sources. I looked a little bit about the agreement that was signed. And for instance, at this point in time, the Iranians are not allowing anybody to expect military bases. They are allowing only to those declared areas, and some of those sites that we know are located under military responsibility. And the system of inspection is you cannot really trust if they are not going to deceive. Don't. Uh, uh, I never would. Yes. I will give you an example of two other countries like Syria or Libya that for a very long time they had a project and they were committed to agreement, international agreement, that they didn't kept it. But my fear is, because I'm looking deeply on the desires and the goals of the regime, that they want an agreement that will remove the sanctions. Of course, sure. They That's are really not interested in solving the nuclear problem. And from my point of view, 
any agreement that will not have penalties when you are uh, not ex when you are misleading the world, or what will be the level of inspection, and how you are really able to fulfill your commitment for inspection, and uh, how you are able to check every site without coordinating with the Iranians, including military bases, I think the agreement is uh, not going to hold water. I, th I think the vast majority of that is actually doable. There are certainly going to be sites that will not be subject to inspection, and again, you'll figure out how to supplement that and figure that out. But I think we've had very good, as it's termed, insights into the Iranian nuclear program. We knew about the quote, covert site at Fordo way, way, way before it was ever declared. Um, that's not to say that we should not be worried. The, the worry I have actually is not what takes place on a military base. The worry I would have is what takes place in some covert site somewhere else exactly. that's deeply buried. And, but again, that's not easy to do something like that uh, in this day and age. And, uh, and again, we should not trust, we should verify. And everything you said actually should be part of that agreement or should be announced as it is signed that, you know, let, and again, if this, we actually have an op-ed piece coming out on, you know, the downsides of success. Uh, and one of those is be prepared up front. Tell them what the penalties will be if you don't, uh, if, the, if the agreement is not lived up to. And that's a huge part of this, I think. Okay, we, we've got to the point where it's, uh, we're taking questions from the audience. I'm going to let Mayor comment on what David said while you have an opportunity to line up. There are two microphones here on the ground floor, and there are two microphones on the loges. So if you have a question, get in line. But Mir, you can follow up on David's point before we go to the audience. From my experience with the Iranians, they were always were trying to deceive the international community. And as I see, see them, their ability to cope with the international agreement is not existing. Then as such, it had to be such a detailed agreement that will cover all aspects that I believe that if we want a real agreement that you are able really to verify everything and the penalties are presented to the front, the chances to achieve it is uh, limited, I believe. Mm -hmm. Second, I'm afraid I've, that in some cases political leadership will say, look, we are able to reach the end game. Let's settle for something less. But I believe in this case, less is creating a real problem in the region. And one of the results of this problem is going to lead to a armed, nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And already we saw some aspects of it in the past. And no, no doubt about it that if they will have a possession of what I call nuclear capability, I'm not referring to military, in every aspect of it, they are going to be much more aggressive in the region in every aspect. Let me take one economical issue. The only, the most important source of income for Iran is oil. They have an interest to raise the prices of oil because it's the only important source of income. How you are raising the prices of oil? By creating instability and putting question marks about the supplying of oil. Then they have an interest, and they are not the only country, to raise the prices. Then they have an interest 
to try to, let's call it, destabilize Iraq and destabilize Saudi Arabia and other countries. And I believe one of the results, if they will reach an agreement, they will reach to their status, that they are going to be much more aggressive than were when they were under siege. And that's, that was my explicit point, that be prepared for success, because it, it's going to give Iran a vast amount of, I mean, think of the d damage that we're doing right now with the Quds Force and Lebanese Hezbollah with very limited uh, means and what happens when the, the, the rats come off in the form of the sanctions. So again, none of this is easy. Um, and, you know, there's an alternative out there, which is you don't get anything and you end up with a strike. Is that where you want to go? So again, you, you do have to weigh the alternatives here very, very heavily. David, you, so you have a, a bid coming out on this soon? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Tomorrow, okay, yeah. good timing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let, let him go to the audience. Let me explain the ground rules. Uh, so please introduce yourself, uh, offer a short question, no, more, no speeches. We have only two speakers tonight, and questions in with a question mark. Let me start with Jim Harpel, who's a member of the International Council. Jim. Jim Harpel, you, got, uh, you folks have been touching on the issue. Let's assume that an agreement is signed and we have to deal with success. Iran is already very ag aggressive at destabilizing the whole area. What can we do to effectively keep them in check? Now, this is what I was referring to earlier. I think there's going to have to be a sig significant program of activities that reassure uh, our Gulf allies. Uh, there should be some explicit uh, policies that are announced if uh, Hezbollah, again, is even more active than it already is. If the Quds Force is out, uh, let's remember what was done to a busload of Israeli tourists in Bulgaria, uh, attempted in Bangkok, where actually the bombers blew themselves up in the end, and a variety of other places at points in between. Uh, and that was done at times when Iran was economically challenged. So again, this is the whole point of my, of this thinking that I've done with a colleague of mine at KPR about uh, being prepared for success, and that's one of the aspects of it that has to be announced up front, thought through up front. The fact is that, that getting the agreement itself is so complex. I mean, Meyer is absolutely right. There's at least 10 different sort of independent variables, and let's say, you know, verification, inspections. If you get more inspections rather than less, perhaps you can get by with less destruction of centrifuges. Again, there's, there's all these different aspects of the nuclear program and it's so complex, I don't know if Gary Samora is here, but of course was engaged in that for the White House, uh, can tell you how that you get riveted on figuring out what's that combination that will be satisfactory uh, and is also something that's negotiable. And we gotta look beyond that and ask, okay, let's say you actually get that. And again, as I said, the prospects actually now maybe appear better than 50-50, which is not something we would have said even a few weeks ago, much less months ago. Uh, and we do need to explicitly be prepared for that. I mentioned a handful of those items that, w that would be part of a program, I think, that, that has to be uh, implemented to, sh to reassure, to threaten, frankly, to dissuade, uh, and to show that there are penalties for certain activities. You know, Hezbollah and the Quds Force are declared terrorist organizations, and so uh, we're gonna have to figure out how it is that uh, there are constraints put on their activities beyond what we have already done with various Treasury Department and other sanctions and so forth. So, Mia, we were, we were doing this uh, drilling down earlier today, so 
if you had to compare two worlds, so in one world, you don't have an agreement. We're just kind of the continuation of where we are now with Iran. So the sanctions are on. We continue talking. Uh, they stay where they are. They're not moving forward. They kind of freeze. And this goes on for another year or two. In the alternative world, we reach David's agreement. It's a good agreement. It's got penalties. But they nonetheless get relief from the sanctions. So they're now uh, going to be considerably healthier, wealthier. They're going to feel a little bit like they've been released. Well, between these two worlds, which one do you want? I want the third world. Okay. <laughs> What's your third world? Look, I think that as long that you are not going to present a threat to this regime, we are not going to see a drastic change. And another aspect, you are not able to divide other aspects of the behaving of Iran from the nuclear issue. Iran is not only dealing, and already the general Petrov mentioned it, Al-Quds force supporting the Hezbollah. He didn't mention that they were supporting even Sunni organizations like the Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Yeah. And in some cases, they are hosting some of the relatives of Osama bin Laden inside Tehran. Then they were playing a real different game. Are we able to separate and to focus only on a, the nuclear issue and neglect all other, what I call, a misleading role that Iran is leading? I believe that no. You are unable really to say, look, I'm taking a certain issue. I'm focusing on just one point. And if we're achieving, it's a better world. I don't think it's a better world. I think it, we are going to see an aggressive world. And I think the only way to achieve something solid eventually is the regime change in Iran. Or you are creating such a, such a vivid threat to the existence of regime that they will commit themselves to much more uh, what I call concession. About the agreement, I want to mention one more fact. I think you started the negotiation too early. I think that sanction was working very, they created a, an unbelievable internal situation. It was really threatening of the regime. Let's not forget that the one who blinked first in this relationship, in this agreement, were the Iranians. Yeah. I think that if, I agree, this is a tactical issue, it's not a strategic. If you will wait more time, and we'll give the impact of the economical crisis to occur, their willingness to give more concession was a much a better one, and you could achieve more. I think we did it in a point of view where they blinked a little bit, but their type of negotiation is a very shrewd one. You have to remember like a bazaar negotiation. Their front achieved removing some sanctions in the beginning to what is called by Western side to great good faith. They already achieved their goal. Why to continue? Now let's negotiate on every aspect of it and every small detail and try to delay the process. That's exactly what they are doing because some of the sanctions, even though that officially they are not removed, some they are operating like most of the sanctions were removed. They are selling more oil. They are, they are having more ability now. You see, there is a competition in Europe who is going to be first in the Iranian market. Then 
people are not listening to the restriction that were put in the past. I will adopt a different uh, strategic approach to this negotiation. Let's take this gentleman. There's just one question, and how long can you maintain the sanctions regime? And that is not a trivial question. Uh, and you already see, I'm not sure that they're working around all the sanctions. So they're going to get seven, eight billion dollars out of this. That's nothing remotely what l they'll get when the sanctions are truly lifted. But, you know, you have Russia now uh, starting to enter the picture. They want to do a 20 billion dollar barter for oil deal. Uh, and that could be a real complicating factor as well, and you know that, that then ties back into Ukraine. But we probably ought to let the next right, question well, we, go. We could build up <coughs> further on this one, but I think we clarified. Please, sir, introduce yourself. My name is John Clark Levin. I'm a <coughs> master in public policy student here at the Kennedy School. Within the context of the broader instability in the Middle East, you both led organizations that had to make very difficult decisions about carrying out targeted killings of your nation's enemies with drone strikes or helicopters or special forces. And often those operations led to political blowback or bad PR for your countries. So my question to each of you is how did your organizations think about that trade-off between blowback and military necessity and what procedures or principles guided those judgments? Let me start, let me just, I am talking about this strictly as an uh, individual who is privileged to command for our forces in war. I'm not going to talk about my subsequent government position, the director of the CIA. Anything that the agency would do if it were in that realm would be covert action, legally that is covert, and therefore you don't discuss it even in uh, Kennedy forums. Um, <laughs> Look, David, there's David very, is there very, are very David clear. very old-fashioned, and I yeah. agree. There are very clear. You start with what are called rules of engagement, and this is, that is a legal document. Every operation plan has a anywhere from 30 to 40-page <coughs> addendum that is the rules for the use of force, and it includes uh, precision strikes, targeted raids, whatever, anything, conventional operations, use of indirect fire, close air support, and all the rest of that. And uh, it, again, it's generally quite precise, but at the end of the day, you do have to make judgment calls. You have to determine how important is uh, attempting to achieve success in a particular mission or particular action, uh, and weigh that against the, the downsides. And you have, uh, you know, you actually have operational lawyers who are a huge help to this process. Now, don't you know, misread this and say the lawyers are telling us what we do or so forth. They are party to this. Uh, and, the, and the ones that I was privileged to have who were really talented individuals were just among a team of people that are talking about the ability to target what happens with the, you have three-dimensional modeling of a strike and its effect and all the rest of that. Collateral damage, are there civilians, are there protected persons, protected buildings, all the rest of this. It's quite complex. But you can move through it very quickly because you're doing it all the time and you're very familiar with that. And that's where it starts. And, that's, uh, and then at the end of the day, a uh, commander has to make a decision. Uh, occasionally, if it's a really close call or it's going to be a particularly sensitive operation, uh, you may want to consult with a host nation partner. I used to talk to Prime Minister Maliki, for example, uh, at times on a near nightly basis about whether or not you know, we could withstand going into Sadr City that night. This is before we ultimately cleaned it. 
uh, in March of 2008, but it was a very dicey proposition going in and out of there uh, after Shia militia extremists. Sometimes I'd talk to them about other operations, and sometimes you talk to your own chain of command about, hey, you guys need to be ready that we're going to do this, or occasionally, I need your, you know, I need a little rudder here, boss, uh, i.e. a little top cover on this one. And there were occasions where we sent something all the way uh, to the ultimate destination just to make sure that folks knew we were going to do something uh, and certainly didn't register tilt on the action. So there's a very considerable uh, process through which you go. As I've said, you actually get, you know, very practiced at it and you can move through it very quickly as the need arises. Uh, but in many cases, you have a very clear set of, of criteria of uh, conditions that have to be met. And if they're not met, then uh, you don't proceed with the action. I'm not going to elaborate on this issue, but I will say two things. The main principle is not, is not of killing of somebody. The main principle is prevention. You have to judge what is the danger, the threat, this individual is opposing, opposing on you. That's the first element. Second, if you don't have any other alternative, and the only alternative is to use a strike, then this is the second option. It's not the first one. Yeah. Nobody is speaking how many people you are arrested or brought to trial and uh, deal with it in other way because it's not yeah. interesting. You, but you always want to, I mean, you want to actually capture someone, detain someone, because that's what leads to subsequent operations. I think that uh, people- you follow the trail, if you will. I agree. Uh, I think that people are paying mu too much attention to the end game, to the strike itself. They don't see how many people you arrested, how many people you put it on trial in a, in a court, and how may, some of them were released, some of them were put in jail, and they don't, some of them are not realizing this is the last resort. And the main purpose is to prevent greater damage. And you don't have any other alternative. The gentleman this in the lodge. Good evening, gentlemen. I'm Major Jordan Ewers, Strategic Intelligence Officer for Special Operations Command South. My question is for both generals. <coughs> Understanding that we're in an unclassified forum, uh, what are your present views on the continued growth of the Joint Special Operations Command and Special Operations Forces? And to what extent do you believe that the Israeli Defense Forces should partner with American Special Operation Forces in the next five to ten years? Well, um, first of all, again, you asked about two different elements within the greater Special Operations Forces. One is the component that carries out our counterterrorist uh, efforts, the Joint Special Operations Command, the designated CT element, which has under it special mission units, relatively small, really quite small, and when it comes to operators from the Army uh, and the Navy, uh, and then sometimes we can get a, a second one in from the Army as well that can go either uh, to the black soft world, as we call it, or the white soft world. And then you have uh, other special operations forces, Green Berets and so forth, that typically work with host nation forces, uh, partners, allies, and so forth, uh, carry out missions like that. The the Non-counter-terrorist force Navy SEALs do that same mission, can do it, uh, as can uh, the Marine Special Operations now as well. I mean, the bottom line is that we have had more missions than special operators for a number of years. Uh, and even with the uh, 
reduction of forces in Afghanistan, the earlier uh, withdrawal of our combat forces from Iraq, uh, there still are more missions uh, out there. I mean, if you look at the Green Berets, there are five uh, regiments now, uh, or groups, I mean, uh, and you know, of those, typically there's one battalion at a time that can actually be deployed. There's one getting ready to deploy. There's one that's recovering from deploying. So you actually can run out of those numbers pretty quickly. You can surge for a short period of time, which we've done. Uh, you can scrape together some others. But the fact is that there are still more missions and special operators. The challenge, actually, is not, the issue is not should we get more special operators in both the counter-terrorist role and in the uh, foreign internal defense role. Uh, the question is, can you continue to increase their numbers drawing from a pool of conventional forces that are reducing quite considerably, especially in the Army, and maintaining the standards so that they are still specially selected uh, and special operations forces. And that is a challenge. And I think the axiom in, in that world uh, is always quality, not quantity, uh, people, not equipment. Now, you also want great equipment, and you want as many quali quality people as you can get. But you need to draw a line and uh, the challenge, I think, is going to be whether the, this expansion can continue uh, given the reduction in the pool of people from whom you draw those candidates. Maybe we go to this gentleman. Hi, thank you. My name is Max. I'm a freshman at the college. Uh, I want to ask you a question about what you were talking about earlier with regard to the peace process. So one, one of the things that Prime Minister Netanyahu has said recently, and maybe has become more clear this week with the Palestinians joint attempting to join a lot more UN agencies, is that the reason that the peace process going forward isn't Israeli uh, reluctance, but is Palestinian reluctance. And he hasn't really elaborated on that. And so my question to both of you regarding the peace process, and General Petraeus, you addressed this a little earlier, is how do you think the incentives line up on both sides? And in particular, do you think that both the Palestinians and the Israelis really have a true incentive, a strategic incentive, to actually go forward and try to get a two-state solution? I believe that yes. In general terms, the two sides want peace. But each one wants a different peace. And it's a complicated one. And I think that the, the real issue is not lies in one side. It lies in the two sides. Uh, I'm an Israeli. I have to identify myself with my country. I think truly the most of the Israeli wants a real peace. And they are willing to make uh, real sacrifices in this aspect. I think the ability of Abu Mazen in this point in time to make any concession is not existing. He is really following what I call the legacy of Arafat. He didn't change it for an inch. And if you are looking who are the people who are surrounding him, unfortunately, this is the same group that came from Tunisia. You didn't see any new faces. Abu Allah, Nabil Sha'af, all the rest are the same guys who arrived in 94. They didn't allow people from the territory to become in position of power. They have a real interest of solving the problem. I'm not saying that they are to blame for it. I'm saying that in this point in time, they were incapable because of their own unique weakness to reach and to have a leadership that is willing to compromise. I think the, the problem also exists in our side, in the Israeli side. But I think that there's a real desire on both sides to reach eventually a peace agreement. 
This lady, please. Hi, my name is Jennifer Rowland. I'm a master's in public policy candidate at the Kennedy School. My question is for General Dagan. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about the apparent contradiction between Israel's economic interests in the occupied territories, partic particularly the West Bank, and its public stance on security. There are many Israeli companies operating in the West Bank every day, Palestinian laborers who work for them. But Israel has also built a wall around the territories ostensibly to keep, from, keep terrorists from getting into Israel. And there seems to be a contradiction there in my view. There is no contradiction. The real, the real uh, wall that was built or the real fence that was built is really formu formulating in a way what most of Israeli are seeing the future borders between Israel and the Palestinian state. And um, we are taking in consideration that some of it will have to swap lands. So some of it is going into the Palestinian territory. But if you are looking on the wall, it's almost not far from what we are calling the 67 border. Now, we have many settlements in the West Bank. I think there is very hard issues like Jerusalem. For us, it's not a theoretical issue, not a, practical, a theoretical issue, it's a real issue. It depends on everything that is represented the Jewish state is tied up directly to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. Then to find a compromise with Jerusalem is a very complicated issue. And uh, I think that the fact that settlers are in and some of the threats are located inside the territory, like member of the Hamas or the Islamic Jihad, and people who are, because of different reasons, are willing to operate against Israeli targets. And in this, may, in this point, I'm not making separation between the territories and Israel. You have a necessity to operate there because nobody else is doing this job. I have to admit, to a certain point in time, and a few times in the past, the Palestinians were very serious in dealing with threats against Israel. They were very serious. Unfortunately, there's ups and downs in this uh, position by the Palestinians. And I think that as long as they are not going to take responsibility on their territory, let me remind you a little bit in the past, we had the first intifada, we had the second intifada. The second intifada was the armed intifada. It was orchestrated by Yasser Arafat not by as an event that took place by the, by, by the public. It was a well-organized, uh, re not rebellion, but attack of terrorist attack, a suicide attack against Israeli. We were forced to go in to solve the problem. Uh, I think that the necessity for keeping the peace and keeping what I call to protect the Israeli citizenship in the territories and outside, you need to have a presence in the West Bank. And uh, we saw what happens if we don't have a presence in Gaza. We see how it become a stronghold for the Hamas and the Islamic Jihad and other radical groups. And they are using this territory, instead of developing it, they are using it as a military base for shelling Israel. Then this aspect of security it's a major concern for the Israelis. That's the reason why we are unable really to give the territories and to wait till the other side will commit its responsibility.
So I, I have a problem that we've come almost to the end. We have three people up, and if we do very short questions, I'm going to take all three very quickly and let the two <coughs> guests answer whichever one they want. This gentleman, very quickly, please. Uh, uh, Jed Schwartz from uh, County. Uh, uh, it used to be the case, I read, uh, that uh, Iran was forced to import uh, refined petroleum, uh, refined oil, because they had an inadequate refining capacity. Uh, I, the question is, uh, is that the case, it continues to be the case because of uh, trade embargoes imposed by the United States and the West on certain crucial technologies that they could then would presumably, if they're capable of making a nuclear reactor, they should be capable of making an oil refinery. Is it the case that this is an embargo? And if, if so, is that embargo on the negotiating table? Okay. Thank you. What's the constraint? Good. Yes, this gentleman. Hi, my name is Nathan Foster. My question um, relates to arms proliferation. Obviously, the Iran negotiations are about preventing nuclear arms proliferation in the Middle East, but is there also a danger of conventional arms proliferation, for example, uh, advanced missiles getting to Hezbollah through Syria. Um, this is, uh, much of this is backed by Iran, but some of it is also backed by the Gulf states. So as uh, General Petraeus said, we might increase our security cooperation with the Gulf states to respond to Iran. Could this risk increasing um, uh, conventional arms proliferation in the Middle East? What would be the consequences of that to Israel and the US? And the US and what should be done about it? Good question, and that's final question, please. Thank you. My name is Shraddha Balakrishnan. I'm a joint MBA and MPA student here. Uh, my question is to both of you, but it's about refugees. My first question is to Mr. Degar. You have said in the past that uh, current Palestinian refugees should be encouraged to settle in countries where they're living right now. UNERVA says there are over 5 million Palestinian refugees. Can you elaborate on how uh, realistic it is to expect Lebanon and Syria and all the neighboring countries where Palestinian refugees live. And my question to Mr. Petraeus is about uh, the humanitarian crisis in Syria. Um, over 200,000 people dead in a massive humanitarian uh, refugee crisis as well. 150. Okay, yes. little less than 200,000, uh, but over a million refugees. Uh, what, what advice would you give to President Obama as he thinks of what he should be doing about Syria? Okay, easy questions if we can have short answers, please. I'll, I'll start pick, with the, pick the whichever very last ones you one. want to answer, yes. Um, I think actually that the President and his security team uh, are examining how to increase the support that's provided to the moderate opposition uh, in an attempt to change the momentum on the battlefield, if you will, which right now is largely with Bashar al-Assad, who's gradually accumulating uh, it, victories in individual battles uh, with the help, obviously, of Iran, uh, guided by the Quds Force and supported by Lebanese Hezbollah fighting actively and taking a number of casualties uh, in, in so doing, and also by some other Shia militia uh, from elsewhere in the region. Uh, and again, in addition to providing, obviously, as much humanitarian assistance as you can, it's, it's over a million refugees just in Lebanon alone, by the way. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands in uh, Turkey, Jordan, and a variety of other countries as well. Uh, but then, if the momentum it changes, at least, I think there is some prospect that there could be some kind of negotiated settlement. Although, uh, I have to say that my fear is that Syria remains a very bloody uh, sectarian regional civil war 
uh, for quite some time. I'm not sure that uh, there anything can be negotiated. And you have the additional problem, of course, of al-Qaeda now uh, being resurgent in between Iraq and Syria both uh, and looking for a sanctuary that they could use there from which they could be a lot closer to the Schengen zone of Europe uh, in the United States than the mountainous areas of Western Pakistan. Well, Mayor, if you could answer whichever one you want. I'm not escaping your question. I will answer it. The, the men who ask about the oil. Uh, it's not they don't have the ability to build more refineries. It was bad planning by the regime. As such, they were forced to be dependent on products of oil to be at least 30% of it, of their necessity, was really important. Uh, now I know they are in the process of building more refineries, and I think that eventually they are going to solve this problem. It's not related to, the, to any sanctions or other reasons. It was simply related to bad planning by the regime. Now to the question that you ask about the refugees. Let me remind you that in 1948, since 1948 till 54, we received refugees from Arabic countries, Jews. The number was more than two and a half million in that period of time, from Morocco, from Iraq. They were, didn't came voluntarily to Israel. They were thrown out by their own governments. The prop property was confiscated by the regime. And in some cases, they even changed the name of the neighborhood that used to be once Jewish neighborhood. Then the question of refugees not exist only in one side. There's one big difference. We took care of all the Jews who came into Israel. We find a solution and we were taking care of them. Then in a way, it was not created a problem of refugees. The real problem of refugees was created because the Arabic countries always wanted to keep it as a political card. And therefore, a very long time, were keeping it on the borders of Israel. They, keep it, they kept it in Gaza. They kept it in Jordan in the beginning. They kept it in Lebanon. And uh, it was not, they didn't solve the problem by simply because it was a very effective tool to mobilize the mobs or the public against Israel. And I have to remind you that we have at least four wars with our neighbors. At least. I'm not speaking about small operations. Then the real problem lies in two sides. I think that uh, Israel is unable to accept return of Palestinians into Israel. I never said anything about return of Palestinians to the West Bank. I think that they will eventually will take some refugees to the West Bank. But the numbers are going to be small. Not because they don't want to come, but because the present uh, Palestinians are unwilling to accept refugees. And if you are going to go in the West Bank, you will see the difference. What is the people who are living in the area of Ramallah or Nablus or other towns and refugee camps. And it was kept by the Palestinians themselves. Let's not forget it. I think that uh, Israel cannot take the risk of accepting the Palestinians. I believe we have to 
give a hand to solve the problem. One of the problems, how the way to solve it, is to bring some of those Palestinians into the West Bank or into Gaza. Gaza is much more complicated. Some of it, it's to find the right way the hosting countries will adapt them. Let me give you an example of Jordan. In Jordan, you have Palestinians, what we are calling 1948, that were received uh, Jordanian citizenship and they are living in Jordan as citizens. I agree there is a problem with what we are calling the refugee of 67 and, uh, and more and above it. You know, I don't know if you know it, but in the Middle East there is a tendency of refugees not to go back home. Let me give you an example of Jordan. They accepted very close to a million people who emigrate from Iraq into Jordan. Only a small portion of them went back. I have to agree that most of them were Sunnis and not Shia, and they were afraid of the, what will happen to their future. Then they are living in Jordan today, and they're accepting slowly, slowly uh, citizenship by, by Jordan. I think that some of them were accepted even in the Gulf countries. Let's take Abu Mazen himself. He was a citizen of Qatar, he is in Sun. And he was for a very long time living in Qatar and even uh, his son did business with them and he was a teacher there. When he didn't deal with terrorist activity, but we're going to count it in the past. Uh, I think that the, it's a serious problem of refugees. But to solve it, you need all sides to sit seriously and to look at it not as a general problem, but as an individual problem. What you are doing with every family, how you are supporting them, how you are setting them down. I believe that eventually we can find the resources for doing so. It will be difficult, much more difficult on the political aspect. And I think that uh, I come from a country that I myself am a refugee. I was born and trained on Ukraine, not in Crimea, a little bit north of Crimea. <laughs> I never claimed for Ukraine citizenship and not the Soviet one. And uh, I know the story of my parents, and I'm not an individual, an individual case. I'm a case of a majority of Israelis. I think that from the moral point of view, we have a responsibility for it. We never escape from it. We think that seriously it must be dealt. But it couldn't be solved by accusation. We are approaching with an unmoral approach. We try to, to solve the problem there by the Palestinians by force. I don't think that really this is the real attitude. I think as a country that was established by refugees, uh, we have a very developed sense of moral responsibility because we were ourselves refugees from our own country. So uh, let me uh, uh, unfortunately bring us to a conclusion. Uh, the, we're over our time, but we could stay here for much longer. We're going to hope that these guests come back. And we're also going to look forward in each of the cases to the next chapter of public leadership in both of their lives. So let's say thank you very much. Great. What's happening now? We go okay. over to dinner, okay. and we just take these things off, and then Thanks. these guys are things. Oh, yeah.